Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm delighted to welcome teacher Tom Brassington onto the podcast to talk about all things primary education. In this classic episode, we discuss the key features of Tom's lessons, his approach to leadership, that all-important research thunderbolt, as well as his work in the field of mental health. And I have absolutely no doubt that you are going to love every second. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So Tom, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. We always begin with our teachers and numbers, our guests and numbers, just to get a feel for who they are, where they're from. So my first question to you is years as a teacher. Six years, going into my seventh. Number of schools? Um, four schools. First year group taught? Year six. Last year group taught? Year three. Most important year group? Um, you're always going to make an enemy in this one, aren't you? I think for me, I've gone with year three. Um, it's one that I've got a lot of experience in, so I've kind of got a bit of a bias. But I do think it's really, that change from key stage one to key stage two is really often underestimated in schools. And I think it's so important to get that right. Um, I think children quite often, just how they develop emotionally and relationally at that point as well in primary, I think it's it's really foundational how we get that right. Sort of empathy um, begins at that point and that's when they start to grasp that. And I guess for me, if you, if you train them right in, in good habits at that point, then, then it's, it's doing a favour to our key stage two colleagues if they've got it right at that stage. So I'm gonna go with year three and hope I don't offend too many people. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a devilish question. I'm mm-hmm. totally with you because there's, there's some hard graft in the first maybe 13, 14 weeks of year three, you know, but then you start seeing the payoff once you get past Christmas, don't you? Definitely. What about your favourite year group? I've done year three a lot and I do love lower key stage two. I'm still going to say year six. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a cracking year group. It's, it's that special time that you get with them and to do all those things that make up that last year of primary and, and those those landmark moments that they remember. I think that's really special, but I guess, yeah, that level of engagement as well that you get with those children, um, the sort of depth of the discussion that you can get to, I think that's really, there's some really powerful stuff goes on in year six, definitely. Yeah, I can see that. And number of tweets. Oh, this is embarrassing. I'm 18.5 thousand. That's pretty bad, isn't it? I actually looked at my the number of likes that I've done as well um, and it's somewhere in the region of 78,000 and I thought I'm pretty sure I don't like many things at all but here I am so yeah <laughs> embarrassing I think uh, that's fair enough I mean I think that's probably Europa League maybe pushed into the Champions League places when you look at um, you know some of the 34,000s that we've had in... <laughs> I was say, thank God for Shannon <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. People always talk about, you know, whenever I ask them, they're all like, you know, they're either really high or really low, but everybody's equally embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Really looking forward to this one because we're going to do a classic episode with all the the classic questions. And so you're a teacher, co-creator of Bottle Book and an advocate 
for conversations about mental health and emotional honesty. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Sure. So I, um, I guess I grew up loving three things um, when I was a kid. I loved, I loved musicals. I loved um, going to church, and I loved school. Um, and I think those three things kind of those were three trajectories I could have gone down maybe. Um, so I loved musicals because I wanted to be on stage when I was a kid and I, and I wanted to write shows. Um, Stephen Sondheim's my hero. And so I wanted to be like him when I grew up. Um, and then church, I guess. Um, I've always gone to church um, with my family and that community that you get there and the chance to inquire and ask big questions. I was always fascinated by that. Um, my Sunday school teacher used to say that I just had too many questions, which I think is, I think that was a get out of jail free card for her. But um, that was always something I loved as well. And then for school, really, it was always about my mates for me, um, having a laugh. I was a bit of a coaster at school and I would kind of fly through and do all right. And I, I think, you know, when grown ups always used to say the best years of your life, it's what everybody says, isn't it, at school? I was actually one of those people who really felt like that when I was at school I, I just loved that environment um, particularly secondary so I did all three really I did a degree in music theatre um, and did three incredible years there met my wife there um, but realistically knew that wasn't a career choice for me um, I left uni and worked for my church for a, for a year um, as well I did some youth work and stuff like that um, and again, similar sort of thing. I knew I wasn't going to be a vicar. And so it was more about keeping my toes in with that and, and finding other stuff that I wanted to do. And I think sort of the same time that I was kind of questioning that after I'd left um, work at church, I was thinking, do I want to do secondary or primary? I'd always thought I'd do secondary, but I, I was in Argos with my mum and dad and um, we were buying some stuff for the house. And I saw my, um, my year two teacher there um Mrs Leddenham was her name and um she was a great teacher and and it, it sounds really cheesy it sounds really um kind of cliche but it, I got this feeling um when I saw her and it was a feeling of almost um safety and and I felt happy and I thought if I if if I could do a job where 20 years down the line I see somebody and they still have that that feeling I still remember that feeling I thought that's got to be a sort of top job to be involved in so yeah, I did, I did a year um, schools direct at Nottingham, so four days a week in a school in Derby. Um, had an incredible mentor who I, who I don't really, I, we never really talk too much about mentors, but they're so valuable, aren't they? And, and never underestimate the power of a positive role model, I guess. And my mentor, Kim, was, was fantastic. So I stayed on there for a maternity leave cover. It was the kind of school where everybody stays forever so they'd all been there forever and they were all going to stay there forever um so when the maternity leave ended and there actually wasn't a job there it was kind of quite a nice opportunity for me to get out and try something new and so then I'm at the school that I'm at now which is um a Catholic primary school in Burton-on-Trent in the Midlands I did a year during the pandemic did a year in the city centre school in Derby and now I'm back at the primary school in Burton so yeah I teach year three um at this school um geography lead and um, do quite a bit of work around reading for pleasure for the school as well. Nice, and I reckon you've got plenty of opportunity to put the musical theatre training to, uh, to good use. I love to write an Easter play, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the four most prominent features of a Mr Brassington lesson? So 
being privy to the questions and kind of thinking about them classic episode as you said I, I wrote down some ideas and I was thinking what are the things that you'd see if you went into my classroom and I think this is a bit rogue and it's unintentional and it's going to sound ridiculous but it, it, I think it I think it kind of follows the classic structure of a Broadway musical. So bear with me when I try next. I'm gonna do like a whistle stop tour of Broadway musicals in, in this process. So I think start of Broadway musical, you get an opening number and an I want song. So um, sort of a place where the character establishes what they want and the audience gets to see all of the scene set. I think for me, start of my lessons, I want to establish what we're gonna get out of that lesson. Um, so I'll be really clear from the start of that lesson with the children. And also establishing, especially in year three, um, where I'm working at the moment, after that transition from key stage one to key stage two, I want to establish those rules and, and expectations for that lesson. And I do that fairly regularly in my class, um, just so that they're constantly um, on the kind of on the brain of the children who are in my class that they've got that. Yeah, so I think that's the first one is being really clear on what I want us to be able to achieve together through a lesson. Second, in a um, Broadway show, every show has um, applause. So it's that call and response, that chance to, um, now, oh, I, I don't get the kids to applaud me. That's not my second, my second feature is not me um, getting them to give me a standard ovation. Um, ultimately, it's call and response, isn't it? And I think getting children involved in, in the lesson and the learning, I see the value of that. So being able to model first and then get the children involved in that um, process, having a go, um, whiteboards, chance to check in with different groups of children. You'll see me doing a lot of circulating of the class, getting my steps up um, as well. And then I think the third thing, so you get to act two of a Broadway show, it's a massive opening. And even if it's going absolutely awfully, Act two, the opener, is that chance to re-establish even the worst shows. And so I think for me, um, one thing you will see is if it's going, if it's a nightmare lesson, if it's not going how I've planned, I'm always aware that there is the chance to kind of take, take a step back and get things back on track. And I think I've learned that probably the hard way as most teachers do so um seeing those lessons go wrong you know those lessons where everybody's quiet and they're doing their writing and then you read the writing at the end and you think geez I probably should have um probably should have been checking in on that a little bit more so I think um that chance to stop and to check in either on a whole class level or um with groups or individuals I think it's really important um, and something that I'd be keen to be doing across any sort of lesson. Um, I think there's a tendency perhaps to not do that as much in lessons in the wider curriculum and things like that. And I think it's just as likely that there will be misconceptions in those sort of lessons. And so it's as important to do that um, in those as well. And then the, um, the end of a Broadway musical has this massive 11 o'clock number, this, this big character finish where the character comes to some kind of realisation about where they've got to in their story and I think for me whilst we're probably not going to see masses and masses of progress in every single lesson it's important to kind of highlight and shine a light on the, the progress that has been made. I would try to make sure that at the end of every lesson the children know what we have done, check back to what, we've do, what we said at the start, what were our intentions 
and have we got some way to achieving them and even if we haven't got as far as we would like I would hope that at the end of a lesson we can see something that we have done together there's real power I think for children's self-esteem the children's kind of understanding of themselves as learners to know to know that process to see the progress that they can make as well that that is a a sensational metaphor you know it I think it's so good that we're going to see a flurry of Christopher Such metaphors coming in future episodes because he will be displeased that he has been bested in terms you know because I can see exactly how you know I've got limited experience but I've been to enough musical theater to see the the key points you're talking about and the way you have connected to your practices is phenomenal what do you think happened that brought you to this point you know was there anything in your professional development that sort of you know obviously not the metaphor but the the practice because I'm seeing some really key markers of efficacy you know what 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 took place that brought you to this point I do throw a lot of it back to that mentor that I had in my first year um doing schools direct she really just showcased such skill in the classroom of um of awareness that was that was more more than anything else that's what I noticed was how aware she was as of every corner of her classroom in every lesson and and as well as the awareness of the children in her class um she was aware of her role within the classroom and how effective she was being within a particular lesson and quite often in discussions we'd have after a lesson whether whether it was one that I'd led or one that she'd led. I think what we talk about is how effective were we? And was there anything we missed? So the, the perk of being in another person's classroom is being able to spot things that they don't necessarily spot. And that's always been a really valuable tool that I've looked back on, especially um, using sort of support staff or TAs um, in that role. I find that really powerful. So my TA quite often I'll say, for this lesson, this particular lesson, just keep an eye out on that group or make sure that I've covered this, this and this and having them as somebody to bounce off of, I find that really powerful. But I think for me, it has been, um, it stemmed from that first year of seeing that, that practitioner being so aware in her classroom um, of, of both her practice and, and what the children are doing. I think, I think that was probably the most influential thing actually uh, and to have that so early on was such such a benefit really yeah I totally see what you mean you know th those conversations are, are essential and you know having someone who can help you develop that level of reflection in your practice you know is absolute gold and I think as we move to um, co this coaching model that um, seems to be part of early career training I think I hope those conversations happen a lot more because uh, certainly when I work with teachers that the bulk of what I do is is that is that sort of taking them to the next step, you know, and like you said, showing and then asking and talking about it afterwards. I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this metaphor. I reckon there's a fourth wall. Do they break the fourth wall in musical theatre? Um, occasionally, yeah, yeah. Because whenever I'm like doing a worked example, I will stop and talk to the either the teacher who's watching me or the pupils and explain as if I'm not the person who's doing the modeling and um, so I, I think there's legs in that you know and I'd definitely be interested to you know see you talk about that uh, you know what what would, don't know what the vehicle would be but uh, yeah that sounds really interesting so how do you try and instigate change on a school-wide level 
I think so my role at school at the moment I'm, I'm still very much a classroom teacher um, and I'm geography lead and um, like I said do some work for reading for pleasure as well I think it's I've just become so much more aware the more of this that I've been involved in more recently how complex it is and, and I think I am still if I'm honest at the infancy of truly understanding how to do it effectively and also in a sort of supportive and, and collaborative way really but I think that the, the EEF put in a document it's called putting evidence to work and it's like a school's guide to implementation of change and it talks through how you would make research informed changes in a school effectively and I think the structure of that document when I read that through um, sort of the start of last academic year actually it's subheadings I found them really helpful so it talks about allowing for time to make change and identifying leaders to cultivate change as well so I'm not in a position where I could be the person who identifies leaders but I want to be one of those leaders that's identified as someone who can cultivate change and sometimes that's as much a part of change isn't it in schools as as anything else being a team player and being someone who's going to support the team in making that change is really valuable and then it talks about being clear on the problem that actually needs solving and preparing and assessing the readiness for whatever plan you put in place um, and being able to solve the problems that come up as you go so that that plan sustains itself over time and I just found that breakdown was really helpful for me because it works on like a micro and a macro level so it could be that you're talking with an ECT about how to implement implement some research informed change in the classroom effectively or or it could be that you're talking to a multi-academy trust about how to do it on an academy wide level so I found I'd recommend that as a really valuable piece of reading for instigating change but for me I if I'm being frank about it I was I went back to my school in se last September was given the role of geography lead and I I was completely inadequately prepared for that role so my subject knowledge was appalling um, I'm embarrassed by how poor it was and my my understanding of what was going on in the school within that particular subject wasn't great either so this year really for me has been a huge learning curve in how to instigate change I've had to change a lot of what I do and I've had to do a lot of reading a lot of listening to helpful podcasts and a lot of things like that to make sure that I am somebody who can begin to instigate change it's a real crime that in in schools we sometimes have people pushing through change that aren't in any way prepared to do that or aren't in any way kind of like qualified to do that and I didn't want to be one of those people so I guess going to the very foundations of it putting in that legwork at the start and then taking the team with you so constantly checking in with the team and chucking out the stuff that's not working checking in and chucking out is one of my sort of instigating change catchphrases <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense because you, you can't you can't put something in unless you're taking something out you know because mm. we um we fill every every single second of the day with with schoolwork don't we geography is not an easy gig because and as you alluded to you know subject knowledge um i reckon of of the foundation subjects it has potential to be one of the ones where people haven't really studied it since their own time perhaps gcse I don't know, is it, is it essential to study geography at GCSE in England? No, um, I, I definitely finished in, at year nine. That was the last time I'd done geography. 
So what, what's your plan then for upskilling teachers to that level where they're you know, able to confidently teach geography in the way that you've envisaged? So I think um, over the past year, I, it's been leading by example. So I've done a lot of, like I said, a lot of reading and a lot of trying to build up my subject knowledge so that so that I can support my colleagues if they've got questions, if they've got um, problems or issues around a particular topic that they're teaching. I, I need to be the person that has those answers to those questions. So I've tried to get myself to a position where as best I can, I can support my colleagues with their subject knowledge. And then it was very much about reflecting on what we do as a school and, and our sequencing of the curriculum. And we actually did a bit of a big chucking out of a lot of the stuff that we were doing. And for me, the key thing that's happened this year in my role as subject lead has been sort of collaborative conversations with colleagues. So having colleagues involved in those conversations and discussions about where we sequence certain areas of learning, how we make sure that certain key things that we want our children to know um, within that subject, how that then is going to be retained over time and revisited over time. And, and we're actually in a really good place. So I, I, after a year of really hard work, we've got some really, really good stuff going on. And it was lovely to be able to sit down at the end of last term with um, both colleagues and with children and to just chat to them about geography and know that had we have done that a year prior, we wouldn't be anywhere near what we are now. And so I think, I know when, uh, when you had Neil and Victoria on, they spoke about the importance of giving it time to develop. And I think it can be really, really tempting to just rush curriculum because you wanna make a change that's meaningful for the children now, but we're not necessarily gonna see the impact of what we've put in place this year, next year. It might be that our current year ones by the time they're in year six, have a much more fully formed understanding of what geography is because we've had those six years with them. So I think having that kind of kind of conscious understanding that we can't make changes overnight that are going to have an impact overnight has been really important for me. So allowing the time for it to develop and, and we're doing similar stuff with our work. I'm working with our with my colleagues in history and science over the next year to kind of have a uniform approach to it but also to make sure that we're still taking everybody with us in that approach yeah my, my next question was going to be have you sat down with your history lead and have you mapped out those connections and stuff so is that a conversation you're going to have next year yes yeah, so we've had we had a couple of conversations um back end of last year at, so history and science the three of us are working quite closely together as a sort of curriculum working party and and that has been, that's been eye-opening for me as well I think it's Mary Myatt talks about the fact that you know the 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 national curriculum is the bare bones and that's all everybody deserves that but they also deserve so much more than that and so I think that's what's been it's been really powerful actually to be able to have those conversations with my colleagues about what do our children deserve from our geography curriculum or our history curriculum that goes beyond what's expected for them to understand those sort of conversations yeah just loving those at the moment because they really um they really do kind of it's a real school vision and that and that's really powerful 
that's, that sounds superb. I think you guys have got a really solid approach to um, to curriculum development. You know, and I think I, I, I find it hard to imagine that won't be really successful, like you say, in the law in the long term. You know, the, the pandemic was a gut punch for me because we had made changes maybe six years ago. And we had this group who were coming through. Certainly we had a group who were, you know, who had been, had received a really high quality maths education for at least upper key, or at least key stage two. And then obviously we haven't, we had a really disrupted 18 months, you know, but I, but I think the, taking the time is definitely the, the right approach because then you can see just how impactful you've been, I think. Yeah, so it's definitely tempting in education to rush things, isn't it? I think it's been nice as well to, that that idea of taking the staff with you and and being that team that's working together to give the best curriculum we can i've certainly been kind of blown away a little bit by a lot of my colleagues when i've when i have had those conversations either with them or with the children about what they've included in the curriculum and what we've chosen and they've perhaps gone and and kind of developed an idea that we'd had in a discussion or maybe even added in an extra thing that they've kind of come across themselves. So our curriculum, it does just kind of naturally broaden and the skill sets that different staff offer as well is something that's really, yeah, that's been really kind of like interesting to see where we've taken, taken the staff with us, but how they've then taken their own sort of delivery of that in different ways it's been really good to see some of the teachers i was working with four years ago are now teaching maths much better than i could ever have imagined i would teach maths and so you know once once people are really invested they just they fly with it don't they you mentioned retrieval and remembering things over time what, what's your approach to that as a school How, particularly in the the foundation subjects so in geography um one of the things that i wanted to make sure we got right was the idea of, of little and often and that idea that we're constantly revisiting learning so that it becomes something. So that web of understanding gets, gets wider and gets more, more kind of detailed. Um, and I know, again, to kind of shout out Neil and Victoria, but I remember listening to that, pod, to that episode of the podcast and, and Victoria said she had like a little and often list in her classroom. Well, I, I kind of nabbed that idea and now we do it in our school so we have a little and often list in our classrooms and, and that's one way we do things so it has all the things that we might want to revisit and I encourage if I have a visitor come into class or, or a head comes in or anything like that at any point you can tell you can just ask any of those and we'd love to revisit them and we'd love the chance to kind of see whether we've got that in the bag or see whether we need to keep on working at it so that's one way but I think as well planning over time things that are going to be revisited again uh, Mary Myatt talks about uh, I think she's spoken about the the importance of like themes like covenant in RE that's something that's going to be revisited across time and across different faiths and that kind of concept so similarly we have similar ideas in geography in our in our school so we might look at the idea of exploration over time and we might revisit different explorers or different aspects of exploration over time. Um, so we look at oceanic exploration, we look at land exploration and those sort of themes, those, those golden threads, then they're, they're kind of things that we'll revisit. And hopefully children will bring something to the table, but then also develop that even further through the new, through the new lens of that particular year group or that particular topic. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I ask because I know 
a few subject leaders in real life who are asking themselves that very question: you know, how do we, how do we change our systems or improve our systems in, in this respect? So I think it'll be really useful, and I think Victoria will be um, really pleased that her her words have had an impact. You know, because I think Lloyd mentioned something similar. He was utilising maybe on a on a broader level, not with not in the classroom, but certainly, um, I think it was part of his briefings. He was he was using it with his staff so he could keep the the tools and strategies they were they were learning about on at the at the fore of their minds. You're the co-creator of Bottle Book with your brother Joe. Yeah. I'll ask the same question I ask everyone. Why does the world need this book? The way I see it, um, we're living through kind of a turning point um, in the way that the world views mental health and mental ill health and actually the way that we validate one another's emotions as well. And certainly over recent years, I think we've made great strides, actually. I spoke with a parent at the end of um, last year and it struck me, she, she was a young parent and we were talking about mental health and just kind of like the acceptance and the knowledge around it was there, it's coming through. Um, and so I think that there's some real hope there, but I guess with the pressures of the society that children are growing into, and, and the pandemic as well, and the way that that shook the foundations of our lives. I guess, I guess, if we're going to support the people in our classrooms in navigating that emotional terrain, um, that terrain that lies ahead, then we've got to go. We've got to go even further than than we have, and so it's got to go beyond emoji check-ins at the back of classrooms or, or inside-out characters. I, I, for our staff too in schools, we've got to be concerned about um, their well-being in a real way. You know, it's not just yoga classes or free bacon butties. It's got to be beyond that. And so we've got to have sustained, meaningful conversations with people we trust over time and conversations about how we feel. And I think that that can't, that's not always easy. Um, certainly, I think for me and my brother as well. We know we've had to have some difficult conversations with people, with one another, with our family about how we feel and, and, and mental health. It's not easy, but I think what Bottle hopefully does is allows children the opportunity to begin to, well, adults who work with children, the opportunity to begin to facilitate those conversations. And also for the children who are there, it's a chance for them to begin to understand how to articulate how they feel. I guess sort of services around around this sort of work are on their knees and it might not be our key job it might not be why we're employed there was a tweet the other day um somebody quoted Doug Lemoff and I wrote it down it said um we must build relationships with those that we teach however there must be balance with how we spend our time building rapport and being effective teachers and trying to build relationships without teaching is a dead-end street. And I thought that's the balance that I want in my classroom. I want to build relationships with children where they feel safe, where they feel encouraged to talk about how they're feeling in an appropriate way and be able to acknowledge those emotions and validate them. But at the same time, I want that to be the, I want that to be the framework because I want a valuable education for them and I want them to be able to be um, taught in an emotionally safe, supportive classroom um, where learning is at the forefront. So yeah, I guess for, for me, hopefully the reason Bottled so important is because it will go some way to helping to create those emotionally honest conversations and those consciously compassionate classrooms. You know, I, 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 feel, I feel horrible asking the question, but you'll notice that I asked Christopher Such and Shannon Doherty 
the exact same questions and, and those two books you know so it's not a book to say you know this book isn't necessary i think it's 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 up there with those that are going to be really essential going forward and so as i'm listening to you i'm thinking right i have very limited experience in this field if i read the book i should then have a framework on which to scaffold my conversations with pupils and perhaps other adults am i, am I on the right lines i think it's important to kind of emphasize the fact that very few teachers are experts in this and i've done i've done some work sort of elsa training so it's emotional literacy support training i haven't done any work beyond that other than the stuff that we've done in kind of creating um creating the book with sort of some professional support there as well to make sure that what we're saying um is as best as it can be what i think the book does is it does allow you that framework it does allow you the opportunity to consider how best to frame conversations in the classroom and and also i think um we've we've created sort of accompanying teaching resources and things like that and what they do is allow a sequence of learning uh, because i think it's important to recognize that that is what that's what we're still doing here so we are still teaching children it's just maybe not something that's been valued in the past and it's important as important to get it right um, my brother quite often says about how the fact that when you look at children quite often they'll come into a classroom and they don't even know they're they're hot so you say you you have to tell them to take their jumper off because they don't know they're hot and so if a child's as unaware of what's going on physically in their body they're going to be similarly unprepared for the emotional things going on in their body as well and so i think yeah, our book would um, support teachers in helping to begin those conversations and consider their classroom as well and what they do um, in their practice to do that, to do this sort of work. Now, obviously, I can only speak to growing up in Ireland in the 80s and 90s, but it, it wasn't on the agenda. You know, as much as my parents might have loved me, you know, it, it just wasn't necessarily something we would we would discuss. And I, I think you're right. I think more people are being open and honest about how they feel and I think that that it seems like that can only be a good thing you know because then people will see that it's, it's something that other people are going through. Mm. Um, my family didn't have any experience of sort of mental ill health at all um, until we were all in our 20s the, the children so me and my brother and my sister were all in our 20s and so we were completely unprepared and in some ways that's where bottles came from. Me and Joe when we were both NQTs spotted similar things in in both our classrooms we spotted that children found it difficult to regulate their emotions to navigate them to identify them even um, and to definitely to express them in sort of safe ways so yeah it's been a learning curve for us as well and i think we have noticed the more these sort of conversations the more of these sort of conversations we have the more of an easy route it is to go down it feels a lot more of a supportive space when you when you do have those conversations and you build that up with other people. So if schools are interested or if teachers are interested, there's a there's a bottle book website. Yeah, so we crowdfunded the book um, last year through um, the publishers Unbound. So you can check out the Unbound website and there you can pre-order your copies or, or if you want any of the sort. We're working with um, some multi-academy trusts and things like that. So all of the details about the pledges, the packages and all those sort of things can be found on that website. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, staff mental health and staff well-being and, and a genuine approach that tries to support 
teachers in in what having a healthy attitude towards their own mental health perhaps is, is there anything you guys do in school that you think oh that this is what other people should really try this you know that goes beyond mandatory yoga classes that kind of thing that's the problem, isn't it? I think well-being is it's that Trojan horse and all of these ideas come in and come out of that particular umbrella term. And they're all they all tend to neglect the fact that well-being's individual. And so what works for me might not necessarily work for you, especially with things like time management. Uh, one of my best mates at school, if she's not there till six o'clock and has got everything that she needs sorted for the next day, she's not going to be able to relax when she gets home. But for me, if I'm not out the door by 4.30, I don't feel like I've got a break. And so it, it does depend on who you are. And I think it's important that any school's handling of staff wellbeing is personal and also so personalised as well. So also recognising the person within it, thinking about their particular context and knowing them well enough the head of the school that I worked in um, first was brilliant. I just She just knew her staff so well. She knew um, what was going on in their lives. She knew what was going on with their families. She could tell if they were having a rubbish day. And that sort of awareness of your staff and that sort of being able to then go in and support them on a personal level, I think it's really important. It's not easy. Ultimately, if we don't support our school staff, when they're not feeling 100%, we're never going to get 100% out of them. So it's really important, I think, to, to do that. In terms of sort of practical things, we, we dabbled with all sorts. So we, we did Zumba, we did um, bacon sandwiches, we did the whole lot. We've, so we've, we've been there. I think what has worked for us is flexibility. So if there's, if there's a staff meeting that somebody can't make, um, either having a recording of something that they can catch on, on later, or maybe a handout that comes with that. Those sort of things could be quite important. But also um, being kind of flexible in, in taking, taking um, adults' time, giving adults time back, sorry. So um, if you're taking time away from a teacher because they've got to do this, this and this, giving them that time back is really important in some capacity. And that can be managed, I think. Um, it just takes a little bit more sort of planning ahead of time. And, and I think certainly for my senior leadership team at the school that I'm at, at the moment, they're really conscious of making sure that if we're taking something away from a teacher in terms of time or we're adding a pressure on them workload, we've got to make sure that we balance that seesaw so that we're not, um, so that they're not going to get themselves burnt out um, by the end of the year. Yeah, that's, that's really clear. You know, I'm, I'm starting to understand the, the complexity in a whole new light you know like you say at an individual level where everyone's different I think my tipping point is normally those occasions where like you say one thing blends into the next and then it's you can't remember the last time you actually just stopped and didn't do something or think about something you know so yeah it's a, there's no easy fix but it, it sounds like you know certainly with respect to pupils but I think with adults too the bottle book will be extremely useful you know, certainly for, I bet there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of teachers like me who have, do, are, are totally ill-equipped, but through this, um, this sort of wonderful thing that you guys, you and your brother have, have created, you know, will be better equipped in future, you know, so yeah, I think that, that sounds awesome. I think maybe one of the most powerful things that's come out of the work that me and Joe have done with Bottled is 
we've had conversations with people who have been impacted by mental ill health in sometimes tragic ways and we've also had conversations with teachers and leaders who question whether this work is the work that teachers should be doing primarily because a lot of people don't feel equipped to be able to do this and worry about the safety around that and I think what's important for me personally is that I want to make sure that a child who comes into my class who's not feeling great or perhaps who's having a really tough time I want to make sure that if they need to talk about how they're feeling I'm an adult that they can talk to. I think it's really important that students look at their teacher and see somebody who they they have access to to talk to not just about their learning but but also another point of call because it might be that that teacher is their only point of call or certain, certainly somebody who they trust it might be that that teacher is the only person that they trust and so we have an immense privilege as teachers not only to provide an education but also to provide a pastoral support to the children in our care to those people who kind of say is that our job I just think it's important to say why wouldn't we want to support our children in this aspect we look around at the world and we see that there are lots of lots of areas where if empathy was better employed we'd be in a better place and so if we can get that sort of empathetic and that supportive network in place from a young age I hope you'll see I hope we'll see in generations to come a, be a better society for it yeah that's that's really powerful and you know I would probably include myself among the the people who when it suggested that teachers are responsible for another thing you know those lists that come out of things that teachers are responsible for, you know I, you know but but the way you've described this you know it, it makes total sense you know so I'm I'm convinced that you know you you can't necessarily avoid being that person that the pupils trust because you spend so much of the of your time with them in a, in a given academic year, don't you? You know, so you know to be prepared for those instances, I think, is really really valuable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the NHS now, I think they did some work early on in the year, and they said something like two thirds of children have two thirds of children in schools have a mental. Oh no, two, I think it was two thirds of children who have mental health um, problems in schools have had contact with a professional, but they deemed teachers to be professionals. So they said that actually, so I think that the role is changing and whether we like it or not really, and whether it's seen as another thing to add to our never ending to-do list, why wouldn't we try to um, weave it into the way that we work with our children more naturally than consider a sort of standalone lesson on this is how you become friends with somebody or which doesn't have the power that a supportive kind of encouraging friendship classroom might have if it's all year round. What's the most important message you want teachers readers to take from this book? It would be to talk it would be to make sure that you are talking with people so yeah, as a teacher, you're talking with people about how you're feeling, whether that's a colleague or a friend or a family member or a spouse, and the same with children. It's to encourage them to talk about how they're feeling. And the more they do that, the more they will be equipped to manage those emotions in appropriate ways. Being a reflective practitioner is clearly quite important to you. What's your process for reflecting and refining your craft? S simply, I, I want to be better every day. I think that's 
the crux of it. I think we spoke the other day about like, people doing the work in the profession and the fact that actually that's what lots of people in our profession just want to do. They want to be better and they want to do the best by the kids in their class. And I think that's why I choose to reflect on my practice as much as possible because I want to get better and I want to iron out the things that aren't working. It's that, it's that Socrates quote, isn't it? The, I, I know that I know nothing. Um, and I'm always wanting to learn. I want to, I want to know more. And it's funny, I was about, it was 10 years ago, I was in Barcelona with my mates, um, Lizzie and Alicia. We went for like a holiday and we'd had a few drinks and um, we'd had a good old time in um, Barcelona. And we were, we were laying down at the top of um, Las Ramblas, which is like a street, uh, one of the main streets in, in Barcelona. And there's like this little courtyard. We were laid down there. We'd had a merry, merry time. And we were chatting with some locals. And, and one of them was a, um, was a chef. And I remember it's one of those things that just sticks with me and, and I can't kind of get it out of my head, but he said, we were asking him about whether it's an interesting job and whether it's boring or whatever um, to be a chef in this particular busy part of Barcelona. And he said, if, he said something like, if I thought, if I thought I knew how to make the best food in the world, what, why would I try to do it better the next day? Or he said it was something like that. It, it might have been less profound. I was, I'd had quite a few drinks, but, but I remember thinking that's right, isn't it? If, if I, if I want to be better, I've just got to be thinking, what can I improve on each time? And, and that's kind of how I like to try and support the ECTs in our school as well. It's saying we might be failing at all of these things right now, but this one thing, let's see if we can nail that. Because if we can nail that in a couple of weeks, then you know that the children have got something better from you than you could do a fortnight ago. And those sort of little steps, I think that's been really quite powerful. And it's and the reason I can share that with ECTs is because it's exactly how I see my practice still. It's like, what can I, what can I improve on? I'm still so new to this profession and kind of surround myself with people who know so much more than me and I think particularly over the past year or two of kind of getting into educational research a bit more and trying trying to understand a little bit more of the complexities of the job that we do every day I think I just want to make sure that I'm trying to do that in the best way possible um, it's like Steve Jobs isn't it stay stay hungry stay foolish that's what I want to I want to I want to do both of those things hungry to get better um, knowing that I'm a full a lot of the time <laughs> I think that's a really a healthy attitude to be honest because the, the the desire to get better is the first thing that needs to come before anyone is going to get better but also you know the more I know about teaching maths and maths education the more I feel I don't know you know and it, it it's almost you know it feeds it because you then you want to you want to know more and you're going to keep going I think once you reach the point where you think you've got it cracked then you're in you're in dangerous territory because I think things can go downhill very very quickly. So it sounds like you've got it absolutely spot on, and I think that leads quite nicely into the next question. And and it's been a while about looking forward to asking this one. What is your research thunderbolt? I've gone with a paper by Daniel Willingham. So knowledge matters. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've actually written down the actual Thunderbolt quote for me. So this is, this is the actual striking right now. Um, so it was 
It's a subheading that says broad knowledge for comprehension, deep knowledge for analysis. And then he says anything you hear or read is automatically interpreted in light of what you already know about similar subjects. And as soon as I read it, I got this vision of a spider's web. Like it was, it was straight away. I got this vision of a spider's web and it began to make sense. I think I must have read this maybe two years ago now. Just the structure of how we learn from those two short sentences began to make sense to me. And later looking at um, Rosenshine and the ideas of building schema, it, 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 it just clicked for me. Um, later in that paper, he talks about creative and critical discussions where the gaining of knowledge is really fruitful and, that, and how much legwork it takes to get there. And I think I'd always had that wrong at the start of my career coming from maybe coming from a creative background I loved like a creative humanities lesson or a cool science experiment or a chance actually a chance to really kind of like analyze and have a deep discussion about what we're reading as a class but but really when I reflect on that it's probably um I probably thought I was doing a good job because for me my web of understanding could cope with that but the children in my class were probably floundering in, in a net of misconceptions and, and all sorts of confusion. It's a bit like when people talk about the values that you get from stories and that argument that um, like religious texts and Greek myths and things like that, that that's where we get our values from those stories and almost like the need for a context within which to understand something. And um, for me, that paper and, and a lot of what Daniel Willingham does, but particularly that paper, gave me an understanding that I need to provide as wide a context for a child to understand as I possibly can before we can begin to go deeper. Great choice, great choice. It, it talks about a few things in there, um, reading is mentioned, um, but I think um, it highlighted because it did talk, it talked about science and different aspects and that, uh, that need for um, deeper, it, it, more than context, that need for a pre-existing understanding to to be to even to be able to pull up a seat at the table um, and I think that that's really really what struck me from it. And what about a research paper that every primary teacher should read? Yeah I've gone with a very short one in the hope that that encourages people to go for it. Um, three pages so it'll take 15 minutes and um, Taking Curriculum Seriously by Christine Council. There's just so much food for thought in those three pages um, and I like papers that don't necessarily give you all the answers, but they do act as that springboard for you to dive into another thing or to try something out or or even to just like begin a conversation in school. Um, and in, the, in that paper, Christine kind of explains the difference between substantive and different dis disciplinary knowledge. Um, and she's asking the readers to reflect on kind of the specialised knowledge within the curriculum. Um, and as a subject lead, that's been really helpful. Um, and if you, I, th I think if you read that as a staff or on an inset or in a staff meeting, I think you could return to that paper week after week, uh, kind of reading more widely and building up that web of understanding and then discussing the impact and the application of it as well across all subjects. So you, you could get quite a lot from that paper as a school. Um, and I think, yeah, Christine Council, um, Claire Stoneman as well, I don't know, her blogs are on Twitter as well. They're just the two people that if they read, if they put anything out there, I'm like, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, and yeah, 
if I was a teacher starting out, um, again, kind of the pa that paper considers the complexity of curriculum that I didn't really understand until a lot later. Yeah, that idea of taking the curriculum seriously, it's just, it's just a jam-packed germ for, for discussion. It really is. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Christine and Claire both get mentioned quite a bit on, on the podcast and, and rightly so, because the, some of the, the thinking that they're doing you know, is, is, it's, uh, I think is it inspiring the right word, you know, because they're just going to such depths that I'm thinking, whoa, I've never considered this, you know, and, and maybe it's because I'm focused on math and I don't, but yeah, I also love reading their, their output and, and listening to them speak, you know, whether it be on, you know, digitally or in person when you've got the chance. Really interesting thing came up there, just incidentally, is, um, you know, you chose a three page, 15 minute article well, what's your approach to fitting in your professional reading? How do you how do you tackle that? So I find reading in short bursts a lot easier than reading for a long period of time. Um, and I have an awful memory. So I find that quite often, I certainly with novels, I could reread three quarters of a novel before I, before I realise I've read it before. Um, so my reading habits on always great for long pieces of reading um so i'm a morning person so i get into school pretty horrendously early and um when i do get in and i'm sorted for the day i'd use that as an opportunity for doing some reading perhaps for 10 or 15 minutes um but that isn't necessarily um something that always happens i know some people kind of safeguard that time i don't necessarily do that i do safeguard um some time sort of so during staff meetings if we're reading something or um we've kind of got something to take away from that i will make sure that i've kind of reread that again in my own time so i've got opinions opinions on it and um, i've got things that i can talk about with colleagues and then in terms of reading um i guess I'm aware of my own reading habits. And so something like um, Mark Entz's book, Powerful Geography, which I read this year, that was a book that I had to make sure that I gave myself a, page, a certain number of pages a day to read. So I said, I, for the next three months or whatever, I'm gonna do 10 pages a day or however long it took. Um, I think it was three, I think it was, I think it was 10 pages for, school weekdays three months something like that and it just gave me that chance to kind of really prioritize it and then I read a book called oh let me get the name of this right classroom to curriculum something like that um and um a sh much shorter book but I, I again told myself right well this is a shorter book I'll read it in a fortnight so I think certainly knowing yourself as a reader it's the same as re when we talk about reading pleasure with kids I guess um knowing yourself as a reader and, and being able to draw up that distinction of what you can afford in terms of time for a particular point in the year, things like that, really important. It's really interesting you said you know, five days a week, because I've, not by design, but just by accident, you know, I, unless I've got a deadline coming, I'll, I'll do my academic or slash professional reading Monday to Friday, you know, as often as much on my employer's time, because you know, they know by this point that they're benefiting because, yes. you know, talking about things in two, talking about retrieval practice in like 2017 when I took up the role. And now they're seeing that come through in, you know, in official documentation. They're all, okay, 
maybe that reading that you do all the time is a is a benefit you know but they, they've always supported me they, they they will see me reading and i will try to be caught reading in the staff room you know so because we've got this figure where you've got 25 percent of people are reading things that aren't um things about education i want to get as many of the 75 percent you know to at least begin and so i think yeah i think that makes a lot of sense but i just i was really interested in there was that you also are a five day a week and then sort of save the weekend for your for your fiction and stuff excellent and like share, sharing the reading as well that's the other thing i'd just say is if you've read something sharing it with a colleague because then that's going to guarantee a discussion if they read it too so um certainly with papers or shorter things rather than maybe than than books although I did it with Shannon's book the 100 ideas one I, I did give that to our maths lead and then that meant that we've kind of got a joint understanding of that book and we can talk about it a bit more and um, so anything that kind of is going to lead to a conversation down the line is, is quite handy I think Excellent. yeah yeah I've um I try to get maybe two or three copies of important books and have them in the staff room and it's always empty which is good because that means people have them but then it makes the summer can I have all the books back, please? And yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, that's that seems really powerful. So all that's left to say is thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.